Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarche. No, that's not me calling you a bloody fool, Rowan. It's a swearing duck who we'll meet later in the show. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll up it. We've also got this. The men had to collect their poos and store them in their home freezers. <gasps> oh, my God, that's horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, an extraordinary story about about storing poos in your home freezer, but really about <laughs> what it means to have a healthy microbiome. Uh, more on that later. We've also got a look at the latest Silicon Valley venture into immortality and good news for anyone thinking of moving to Mars. <laughs> yes, uh, as I was just thinking this morning of moving to <laughs> Mars. Uh, all of that's coming up, but first a quick notice. Don't miss out on our limited time offer of six issues of New Scientist for just one pound. Woohoo! Yes, yeah. with your six-week trial, you'll unlock the best of New Scientist across print, web and the app with no commitment, as well as getting access to exclusive subscriber-only benefits such as audio articles and online events. Go to newscientist.com slash six for one to take advantage of this fabulous deal. Right, we're going to start with COVID and booster shots. Um, so Penny, do they work, booster shots? Should we all get one in a few months? Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a case of not so fast because to some extent it's it's become like the perceived wisdom that we're all going to get our third shot in the next few months or so. And some countries are already cracking on with rolling out a third shot for everybody. And the evidence is pretty good that, yes, this will boost protection against infection. But I think really what the real issue that's facing wealthy nations right now is how much of a difference would that actually really make? What's the long term picture? Are we going to have to keep giving booster shots indefinitely? Mm. So what does the data say about it? Yeah, so potentially um, we, we do need booster shots. There's good evidence now that over a period of six months or so, the protection you get from being fully vaccinated does decline and you're more likely to get infected and also have symptoms of varying degrees. We don't really know what happens beyond the six-month mark yet because we're learning all of these lessons in real time. <laughs> right. um, we're just having to pick this up as we go along, really. But there was quite a bit of alarm over the summer when Israeli data suggested protection against infection may drop to about 40%, roughly six months after vaccination. I should say, though, that might be a bit of an outlier. It's really early days, and some other studies suggest the decline isn't quite that steep. 
But even amongst the Israeli data, there are still some hopeful signs. So yes, the protection against infection did seem to drop quite significantly, but the protection against developing severe disease remained at a much higher level, around 91%. Right. So from that point of view, that's good news and we might not need to do a big booster programme. Yeah, and I, I think it really depends on your viewpoint and what what, priori- uh, what a country's priorities are. So if you're looking to reduce infections, then yes, boosters maybe are important. Um, Israel is already well into its booster program and early data from that suggests um, it does sort of take protection back up again uh, into the region of 90 to 95%. That's protection against infection, I should say. Other countries have similar plans. So the US, France and Germany, are, they're all gearing up to give boosters now. But some other countries are asking whether it's worth it and what the long-term goal is here will we then need a fourth fifth sixth shot will will they keep working if we keep giving them all the time or become less effective We, we just don't really know yet yeah and there's not limitless doses and most places haven't had two doses right yet and many people are unvaccinated yeah, exactly. And that, that's the really big issue here. So, you know, if we're focusing on who needs it most, it, it's people who are particularly vulnerable or likely to suffer more with the disease. And so many of those people outside of wealthy nations haven't even had one shot yet. Michael Ryan at the World Health Organization last month, he said um, booster shots are like giving an extra life jacket to people who are already wearing life jackets while others drown. <laughs> Yeah, I, that's, I can see that point. I mean, and it's a point well made, isn't it? And But people are wanting to do that, still get an extra life jacket, even though they've got one. Yeah. But but what does it mean for our immunity um, over the coming months? We just have to accept that it's going to go down a bit. Well, there's a, a lot that we don't really know yet. So um, I think it's really important that we do bear in mind that we, we could all be more in, or become more infectious than we realise. Um as the months go on. And that has implications for how we manage infection numbers, especially going into the winter. So mitigation measures, you know, there's been quite a a rush to get rid of masks and and start going back into the office again, but probably masks and ventilation and working from home and all of these things we've been talking about are going to be important. But the the big question for me really is, is whether protection against severe symptoms, hospitalization, deaths remains high, because even if we all uh, are more likely to sort of catch it and spread it. If there's a sort of sustained high level of protection against people needing hospitalization and, and people risking death, then maybe a booster program isn't necessarily the most urgent action to take. But if we do see infection numbers soaring, which it looks like they're going to do in the in the UK at least, isn't that inevitably going to lead to more deaths? Yeah, and and it certainly will. Um, But I think the question here is, um, what action can we take that's most effective at preventing or or curbing that that soaring infection uh, rate? And it's possible that other actions or other uses of of vaccines could have a bigger impact. So perhaps vaccinating all secondary age school children may have more of an effect on curbing infection rates. And, And so that's something that the US and some other countries are already doing. But the UK is still making its mind up on on the under 16s. Yeah, a bit of a pattern there, isn't there? The UK isn't giving booster shots. It's not routinely vaccinating those those, uh, 12 to 15 year olds yet. 
Yeah, we, we've been quite slow to make decisions on on these on all these issues recently, which is frustrating. But one thing that the UK has now decided to do is give third shots to people who have severely weakened immune systems, and and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so these are the people who will be least protected from severe symptoms by the vaccines, especially as time wears on. And yesterday, the World Health Organization set out that its position is that boosters should only be given to people like this, people who are immunocompromised. And that globally, the priority, like we said, really has to be on giving first and second shots to health workers, older people, more vulnerable people um, who are at greater risk in all those countries that haven't had as many doses. Ultimately, it may be that the best strategy is to give boosters only to those who are most at risk of severe illness as vaccine protection wanes. For my money, I'd say that that will probably uh, ultimately mean everyone in older age groups too, because we know already that um, the immune systems of older people are less strong, they respond less well to vaccines. And there are rumours currently going around that a booster programme for some older age groups uh, in the UK could be announced very soon. Next up, we have news about immortal billionaires. Hooray! Yeah, just what we want, isn't it? Um, the story is about the latest startup that's dedicated to the search for the elixir of life, or uh, as they put it in Silicon Valley, the cure for ageing. Mm, yes, they very much treat it like a disease that can be cured like any other, or, or just a problem in search of a solution. Yeah. What's the latest here then? So the latest is, um, this is a, a lab called Altos Labs. It's been set up by Yuri Milner and Jeff Bezos with the aim of developing rejuvenation and, and general anti-aging treatments. And actually, they're going to start labs and institutes across the US and in the UK and Japan. And they've attracted some really big name scientists on board. Um, call me sceptical, but I find it hard to get wildly enthusiastic about billionaires living forever. Yeah, yeah, it's not really what we want right now, is it? But two things to say are, first, that it is good that there's a lot of funding going into this stuff, because, you know, there's going to be loads of spillover discoveries, and it's going to be good for science, you know, obviously, assuming it's all published and made open. And the other thing is that, even if they do make a breakthrough and they find a discovery or something that that works, that helps, and it's going to be on mice, right, first of all, that helps a mouse rejuvenate without getting horribly ill, that thing is going to need to be developed and trialled um, with, you know, clinical trials on people. Uh, and that's going to require lots of testing on, and you know, on non-billionaires. So <laughs> it, you could argue that the research could spread out and become more generally beneficial. Yeah, I, I guess that's fair enough. You um, could ar- could argue that. Yeah. yeah. Um, are they looking at like all of the various different ways that we've heard about uh, to try to rejuvenate cells, or, or do they have a particular method in mind? Yeah, they seem to be focusing on one, which is reprogramming, and it's something as you know we've written about a lot in the past. Uh, this is the idea that you can reset your cells to a younger state, um, and. As I was saying, Altos has signed up some of the big name researchers in the field who are doing this and basically poached them by offering you know, better funding and salaries. And, and it, they're saying it's quite blue skies. Whenever I hear phrases like reprogramming cells, there's like a big cancer warning light that sort of flashes in my brain. Yeah. Haven't there been some quite mixed results with these approaches in mice? <laughs> mixed results is a great way of putting it because, uh, yeah, <laughs> you get these teratomas really really horrible things that have teeth teeth and hair growing in the wrong places in little blobs so yeah not good 
but a few promising signs as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there have definitely been promising signs, but there's a, a really long way to go. And, and and I think that's why we don't really need to wring our hands at the prospect of, of having, you know, an immortal class of billionaire just yet. I mean, what I would say and what I did, what I have actually said in my book, How to Spend a Trillion Dollars, is that if you do want to extend lifespan and health span equitably, you have to have universal health care. So it would be nice to see billionaires looking into this aspect of it, as well as these really sexy elixir of life ideas. Let's take a break for a couple of notices. We have announced the shortlist and category winners for the New Scientist Photography Awards 2021 and the public vote to crown the overall winner is now open. The awards celebrate images that illustrate how science and technology affect our lives and the world around us and there are some fantastic pictures. Do go and look at them and vote for your favourite at newscientist.com slash public vote. And that will decide who gets the £1,000 prize, but more importantly, the title of overall winner. That's at newscientist.com slash public vote. The other thing we want to tell you about is our next one-day virtual event, Creating a Sustainable Future, on Saturday the 25th of September. It's for everyone who cares about the planet and our future. There's a day of inspiring talks and discussion with scientists and thinkers sharing their insights on what we must all do to create a sustainable future and about the science and technology enabling it to happen. It's on Saturday the 25th of September from 10am to 5pm and then after that available on demand. For more information and to register visit newscientist.com slash sustainability. Now, um, we're really ticking off the items on my billionaire pet peeve list today. <laughs> We've had billionaires who want to live forever. And now we're going to talk about Mars, another object of billionaire fascination. Yeah, especially, you know, we've had Elon Musk famously saying he wants to die on Mars, but just not on impact. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing there is that even if you do manage to arrive safely on the surface and successfully get loads of robots and supplies and everything you need sent over in advance, the conditions on Mars are, are horrendous. I don't really know why anyone wants to go there. And basically, the radiation there will fry you up pretty fast, right? Yeah. Mars has no magnetic field, only has this really thin atmosphere. So as you say, you know, you get fried, basically. Loads of ionizing and ultraviolet radiation uh, pouring down onto the surface and that sterilizes it. So anyone on the Martian surface, you get exposed to doses of radiation that are 900 times higher than average on Earth. So where are all the billionaire new Martians going to live or, or how are they going to live on, in such a hostile environment? Yeah, this is the thing. We've got these really detailed images of the surface of Mars and they show what appear to be the entrances to caves and the insides of these caves could offer protection from the radiation. And the story this week is that someone has calculated how much UV radiation would still make it into these different types of caves at various locations on Mars and found that in many cases, the levels of UV radiation inside is only about 2% of the levels on the surface. So it's pretty safe, in other words. And would that be true for ionising radiation as well? Yeah, they, they think so, yeah. So that's really interesting. So uh, and, and not just for the possibility that caves would be nice shelters for billionaire or for, for human explorers, <laughs> but maybe uh, what's even more exciting really is that these would be really good places to look for life on Mars because they're, because they're sheltered from this nasty radiation. 
Yeah, so the Perseverance rover is currently digging on Mars to get samples to return to Earth, isn't it? And and the whole point of this is that you might find something interesting if you dig below those sterilised uh, top layers of the planet. Yeah, Perseverance just last week actually has stored now its first sample. It's sealed it up. It's being stored in the in the rover and that will be returned to Earth in about 10 years. And it will be the first material ever returned to Earth from Mars. Uh, which will incidentally trigger a big debate about planetary protection and the safety uh, or the risk of bringing extraterrestrial samples back to Earth. Um, But to come back to the caves, you know, there aren't any missions or uh, any robotic missions to examine or sample from these caves. So I hope I do hope that this work persuades people at NASA to to go there. Um, And even though it's going to take 10 years to get the samples back to Earth, these Perseverance one, it might be that you know, robotic exploration is going to be the best option. Yeah, I, I, I've banged this drum before, but I think humans should be forced to remain on this planet until we fix the mess we've made. <laughs> Not that that's going to stop Elon Musk, though. No. Now, we have a story that concerns a delicate subject, not one that is, say, suitable for discussion around the dinner table and not one that we featured on the podcast before, both of which means we should definitely talk about it now. (laughs) And that subject is male flatulence, men farting, basically. Yeah, um, Ollie, producer, no sound effects on this one, please, mate. (laughs) Roman spoke with our Australia reporter, Alice Klein, about this. Alice, welcome back to the pod. Now, I don't want to say I've got a personal stake in this story, but it is about what a plant-based diet does to men's digestion. And I've had a plant-based diet for many years. So what's the news? Yeah, so basically some researchers in Spain have found that men who follow a plant-based diet fart more and do bigger poos um, because (laughs) the diet promotes certain types of gut bacteria. And these gut bacteria produce a lot of gas hence the extra rear emissions, Um, but they also have a lot of health benefits. Yeah, because, you know, and not speaking from personal experience, of course, just mere anecdote, it's well known that um, eating more plants increases flatulence and and makes, uh, let's call them bulkier stools. It's like eating baked beans or eating lentils makes you fart more, Um, but that's all anecdotal. So are you saying now we've got this proper study on this? Yeah, so the Spanish team compared the effects on the gut of two diets. So there was a plant-based diet that was similar to the Mediterranean diet. So lots of fresh fruit and vegetables and lentils and brown rice and olive oil and a little bit of fish. And the other diet was a Western-style diet that had no fresh fruit or vegetables. So it was mainly things like bacon and sausages and chocolate cookies and cheese and things like that. (laughs) They randomly assigned 18 healthy young men to follow one diet for two weeks and then they had a break and then they followed the other diet for two weeks. Why did they only use men in the study? Well, they wanted to reduce as many variables as possible. So they decided to just do the study in men to begin with. But hopefully they'll now do a follow-up study in women to see if they get the same results. Okay. And what were those results? Well, the first thing they looked at was their poo frequency and size And they found that even though the men did the same number of poos per day on the two diets, each poo was about double the size while they're on the plant diet. So they collected and weighed their own poos on digital scales, and they found that they produced about 200 grams of poo per day on the plant diet compared to 100 grams per day on the Western diet. Wow, that's, um, by the way, I must applaud your professionalism, just the way you're delivering all these facts about something. So, yeah. (laughs) But what a difference. Like, that's an amazing difference between the two diets. 
I know. Well, the reason is that eating plants promote certain types of bacteria in our guts that make food for themselves by fermenting plant fibre as it passes through the large intestine. So the added stool weight was made up of the spent bodies of these extra bacteria, plus water and a small amount of undigested plant fibre. Wow, so that really brings home how just how much, how many bacteria are in our guts. Uh, like we always hear that, you know, the bacteria cells in our bodies outnumber the human cells. But then that, that, this is showing that half the weight of the stool is made of bacteria. I know. I actually had to reread that part of the study a couple of times because <laughs> it, it shocked me as well. Um, yeah. It seems that this extra bacteria has a real impact on gas output as well because the participants were given handheld counters so they could log how many times they farted per day. And they found that they farted seven times more per day on average while on the plant diet. Than when Sorry, they, they had they had diet. handheld counters to I log know. how many times they fart per <laughs> I day. Know. This, was, this was really important science, Rowan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, of course. Um, they also looked at the volume of each fart. And to do <sighs> this, they actually fitted balloons to the men's rectums after giving them a test meal of stewed beans and they found that each fart contained about 50% more gas when they were following that plant oh, diet. Wow. Um, they put balloons on the men's rectums. That, so these guys, I applaud these guys as well, uh, going the extra mile for science. Yeah, this is going to be an ignoble award, this, this piece, this piece of work. Oh, yeah. I mean, they really put their bodies on the line. And <laughs> I also feel for their families because the men had to collect their poos and store them in their home freezers so that the researchers oh. could later analyse their bacterial composition. Oh, my God. So medals to all the participants in this study. So why do the vegetarian men fart more, the veggie eaters? Okay, well, this is because most fart gas is hydrogen, methane and carbon dioxide that is produced by gut bacteria when they ferment plant fibre. But you've got to note that these gases are odourless. So just because you're farting more doesn't mean you're going to clear the room. In fact, uh, another study done by Australian researchers found that eating more plants increased fart production without increasing aroma. And (laughs) the thing that makes fart smelly is actually traces of hydrogen sulfide gas. And this is produced when gut bacteria digest protein. So does that mean the smell would be worse if you have a high protein diet, a high protein meat diet? Yeah, that's what the evidence says. And in fact, there are lots of anecdotal reports of bodybuilders who consume a lot of protein powder and and steaks, and they apparently do some pretty hideous smelling farts. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But the extra farts and giant poos you do while eating lots of plants should actually be taken as a good sign because it shows that you're building up what we call good gut bacteria. So when gut bacteria ferment plant fiber, they release these chemicals called short-chain fatty acids, which are known to have a lot of different health benefits. So they keep the large intestine healthy and protect against bowel cancer. And then they can also get into the bloodstream where they lower cholesterol and blood sugar, and that helps protect against heart disease and diabetes. So vegetarian men who fart a lot can they we we can be happy with our digestive process yeah you certainly can um so one (laughs) researcher i spoke to for this article said to me our western idea that farting is a sign of something being wrong is totally false and she said that farting is a sign of a healthy diet and a healthy colon (laughs) 
Um, so this is absolutely the news story that we do all need right now. A duck that says, you bloody fool. Uh, is that a direct response to my story about farting and stool measurement? Uh, I, uh, think, but, I think it was more but, than millionaires living forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you bloody fool. Uh, but is that really a duck? Um, yes. So this really is a duck. Quite hard to get your head around it, but this is a captive duck in Australia that was recorded some time ago, actually, saying, you bloody fool, which it seems was an expression commonly used by a caretaker of the bird. Oh, my God. So did we know ducks could do this so well? Yeah, so there have been stories apparently for decades that ducks do this. Um, but they, you know, why haven't one... we heard of these stories that are going around for decades? <laughs> yeah, so there are lots of rumors essentially, and right. researchers are just starting to try and track down and see if there's any truth to them. So, so one researcher investigated this one particular report and did confirm that it's true. So, this is the case of a musk duck in Australia named Ripper, who was recorded swearing. Yeah, I know, it has something to be about the Ripper, name as well. Ripper. Ripper. River, um, who was recorded swearing during moments of aggression um, and also imitating the sound of a slamming door when trying to impress females. <laughs> so I'm not sure how sexy the, the female ducks found that, but, but it is impressive, isn't it? It is impressive, yeah. So the background here is that male musk ducks usually learn to make high-pitched whistles from their older flock mates. Uh, but it seems that when males are raised without other musk ducks, they can start imitating sounds from human life. And I, I have to say, in that respect, it's quite a sad story, isn't it? Uh, Elon Musk ducks. I've just realised these are. <laughs> yeah. But uh, does it tell us anything scientifically, uh, uh, you know, that we didn't know about this sort of imitation? Like we do already actually know quite a few animals that are capable of vocal language learning, you know, but which we mean as um, the ability to sort of pick up utterances based on, on what an animal hears as an infant. Of course, parrots do this, but so do some songbirds and hummingbirds, plus some seals, bats, elephants and whales. But I do think it's cool to add another animal to the list. I wouldn't say it's an astounding discovery for science, but it does help us paint a clearer picture of what animals and what kinds of brains are needed for this kind of learning, which is interesting. But I think, let's be honest here, the big appeal is, of course, we're going to love any animal that can imitate human speech. I've got to tell you, once I was um, in a car park in Blackpool <laughs> and there was a minor bird uh, in this little car park booth and I was waiting around and the, the minor bird... Uh, looked at me and said, if you want to shit, the bog's over there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. And it's always stayed with me. And who taught this minor bird to say that? God, that's incredible. Um, one of my favourite news stories of all time, I used to have it pinned to my wall, was an African grey parrot who basically conveyed to his uh, his or her owner that their partner was having an affair by repeating like, I love you, Trevor. Oh my God. And, and the, the interview was just heartbreaking. The guy had to um, obviously break up with his partner, but he had to get rid of the parrot too because it was just too upsetting to be reminded of the affair the whole time. Oh, just God. incredible incredible what these animals can do. The thing that really makes me laugh about this particular story is that presumably someone used to repeatedly say, you bloody fool, to Ripper as a hatchling, um, which is quite a funny interaction. I did check with Alice, actually, and she, she said in Australia, you bloody fool does tend to be a, a kind of colloquial term of endearment rather than just rather harshly berating a duckling. <laughs> And we'll leave it there. Thanks to our guest, Alice Klein from Australia. And thanks to you for listening. 
A final shout out for our six for one deal. That's six issues of New Scientist for just one pound, plus access to exclusive subscriber only benefits such as audio articles and online events. Go to newscientist.com slash six for one to snap it up. That's it. Thanks again. Spread the word and see you next week. Bye bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Gee Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>